This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We are looking today at the final petition of the Lord's Prayer, but as we have been doing, we'll begin our reading in verse 7. Hear the word of God. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. As the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to turn once again to this prayer that you gave to your disciples, this pattern, this model, this template. Lord, we pray this morning as we take it up again and study this final petition that your spirit would lead us into a deeper understanding of your truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, as we return to the Lord's Prayer, uh, we need to be reminded of the structure of the prayer That there is uh, a purpose, a pattern, to the pattern in which uh, the Lord teaches us to pray. Uh, It begins with, after addressing God as our Father, yet in heaven, uh, with three petitions that are Godward in their focus. They're concerned with God's interests, God's concerns in the world. And we saw that those had to do with His name, with His kingdom, with His Will And the very fact that these things come first indicate to us that those things should have a priority in our praying. Uh, Not to say we can't pray simple short prayers about our own needs, especially maybe very spur of the moment. But that in our prayer life generally, these things should be there. Too often they're not. But as we mature in prayer more and more, we will find ourselves burdened for and praying for these big things. The, the, the honor, the name, the reputation of God in the world, the spread of the kingdom of Christ, God's will and God's purposes done in our own lives and in the world, those things uh, will become more and more a burden, something that we pray about. However, certainly we are to pray about our own needs. And the, third, the second three petitions, the final three of the Lord's Prayer, are concerned with our needs. The first one has to do with our daily bread, something so, so mundane which has to do with the world, uh, Latin mundus, the world, uh, worldly needs like food, like clothing, like a place to live. 
that we are to pray. God is concerned about those things, and we are to pray that the Lord would provide those things that we need for ourselves and for others, because after all, these pronouns are plural. It's not give me this day my daily bread, but give us. This is something we pray for ourselves and for one another. And then as we saw last time, uh, not only our need for provision here, but also our need for pardon. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We do uh, come to the Lord daily in repentance, asking forgiveness, asking his pardon for those ways in which we have uh, sinned against him. And then lastly, we pray for protection for ourselves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I'm going to take this up here before we actually begin to look at the words of this final petition. Uh, As we say the Lord's Prayer, you know the concluding words. For yours, or as we say it, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may have noticed that those words are not present here in the English Standard Version as we've read it. And perhaps if you're looking at another modern translation like the NIV, maybe the New American Standard, you'll notice that the the words either are not there but are maybe included in a footnote, or if they are there, maybe the NASB, the New American Standard, does this. It notes that many manuscripts early on do not have those words. Well, that's the reason that they're not there. Uh, It's not some modernist liberal plot to excise portions of God's word from the scriptures. It is that the earliest manuscripts available to us, going back very early on, very close to the New Testament time, do not contain that final doxology. And that's why in our modern translations, it generally is not included there, but is noted in a footnote. Having said that, however, there are two things that we need to note about it. One, there is scriptural warrant, scriptural basis for these words. There is a doxology in 1 Chronicles 29. Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now, as you hear that, you hear some similar words. Whether the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer was drawn from that passage or not, it's certainly similar to it in tone and even in vocabulary. And so certainly the ascription of praise is, is, is our biblical ideas to ascribe kingdom, power, glory forever to the Lord is certainly and obviously biblical, maybe even specifically so with that verse that we saw in First Chronicles. Second thing to know about these words, this doxology, is, is that it was used as a response to the Lord's Prayer from very early on in church history. Even back to the second century, Christians were saying those words kind of as a response or a doxology of praise to God at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. And so I think we do need to note on the one hand that when Matthew wrote this gospel and as Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer that he records here, those words were not original. Nevertheless, the ideas behind them certainly are biblical and in a very long-standing tradition in the church of citing those words in praise to God at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. So knowing those two things, let us then go into verse 13 and look at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer as we find it here In Matthew's gospel, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some questions come up here. 
lead us not into temptation? Would God lead someone into temptation? Well, we're going to look at that. Uh, we, we read earlier in James that God is not tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone. Well, why would we pray for God to do the very thing that God doesn't do? Well, we'll look and see what the purpose is uh, there, why it's put this way. I would say, however, that I think that the way it's phrased is a figure of speech, a literary device known as litotes, where you state something by negating its opposite. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never drive away. Well, we would say, well, of course not. Jesus would welcome them. He would, he would receive the one who comes to him. But you see, it's given emphasis by Jesus saying the opposite in the negative. I will never drive him away. And I suspect there's something of that going on here. Lead us not into temptation. Well, the point is just the opposite. Keep us far from it. Protect us from it. Hold us and keep us against it. But deliver us from evil. And Matthew was writing with Jews in mind. Any Jew would recognize, I think, the parallel form here of saying the same thing, but in two different ways. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, basically amount to the same thing. It's just two different ways of saying it. The Old Testament, the Psalms are full of that kind of device, that parallel um, way of saying things, just in two different ways. And it just adds richness and texture uh, to, to what it's saying. Well, as we look at these, I want, to, I want us to think about this verse under three headings or three truths that we learn from this verse and from Scripture generally, because the context of this verse is, of course, ultimately the whole Bible, uh, about God, about the devil, and about temptation. So let's look then at three truths that we can learn from this passage. First of all, God does not tempt anyone. We saw that earlier, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Have you ever stopped to think about that phrase, God cannot be tempted with evil? It's kind of interesting to think about because evil itself is the very opposite of God, the very opposite of his character, the very opposite of his will, the very opposite of his law. God is not tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. God does not tempt anyone or try to lure anyone into sin. Now we're going to look in just a minute, uh, explore that a little more fully, but for now, just that God does not tempt anyone. When we say, lead us not into temptation, We're not saying, God, I think that you might in some way lead me to sin, that you might lure me or trick me into sinning against you. No, nothing could be further from the truth. God does not tempt us to sin. He himself tempts no one. On that note, it's worthwhile looking at what James goes on to say in those verses in James 1. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And we're fallen. We are prone to sin. We are bent that way. Our desires, by our fallen nature, are prone toward things that are evil, that are wrong, that are opposed to God and His law. And James says each person is tempted when our own desires carry us away. And just notice the process. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Or a picturesque way of 
describing what happens. An idea enters our mind. There's a desire. There's a want. And when it, it gives birth to sin, we actually do what we are tempted to do. An important distinction to make, temptation itself is not sin, but may lead to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, when that child grows up, the, it brings forth death. Or as Paul put it in monetary terms, the wages of sin is death. But that's the first thing we need to establish when we look at these, this verse, this petition, is it's not as though we're pleading with God, please don't lead me into sin, because God has said that he will never do that. He himself isn't tempted, and he, he does not come to his children and try to get us to, to do what is wrong. God does not tempt anyone. First point. Second truth that we learn from this passage and specifically want to address here, God may test us in order to grow us. Now, you need to know, this doesn't come through so much in our English translations, but in Greek, the word for that we sometimes read in our English Bibles, to test, and the word for to tempt is the same word, perazzo. It can mean to test, it can mean to tempt or lure to sin. Now, God does not tempt us to sin. God doesn't want us to sin. God saved us that we might not sin. Christ died to deliver us not only from the guilt of sin, but the power of sin, so that we could live godly, Christ-like, obedient lives. But God may test us in order to grow us. We see this in any number of places in Scripture. He may test us in order to try us, to see what we're really made of, to show to ourselves what we're really made of. And I think perhaps the uh, key passage on this is Job chapter 1. You know, Job, we read in verse 6, Job 1, that the sons of God came, present themselves before the Lord. Satan was among them. And then the Lord himself, draw Satan's attention to Job. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? By the way, Job didn't hear that. But think about it. That's what God himself said about Job. What would God say about me? What would God say about you? What he said about Job was that he, there's nobody like him. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Wow. From God's own lips. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge about him in his house? All that he has, you've blessed the work of his hands. He possesses, his possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand and touch all he has. He'll curse you to your face. Sure, God, look at how you've blessed him. Of course, he's got this easy life. It's very easy for him to live this way. Let's start to take it away and see how Job responds toward you. What does God say to Job or to Satan about Job? Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, you know, no, no doubt doing this bit. He just couldn't wait to go after Job. And then later the Lord said, okay, you may afflict his body, only don't kill him. Which illustrates uh, Martin Luther's dictum that the devil is God's devil. 
In other words, the devil is on a leash. He can do only what God allows him to do. But God allowed him to have at Job, to give it a go. And you know, if you know the story of Job, that Job persevered, and while he struggled mightily, he would not curse God. He would not turn against God, though he had some very big questions and even some complaints. But he would not turn against God. And in fact, he stood the test. God may test us to grow us. He may try us to show to ourselves and to him what we are made of. He may test us to humble us. Sometimes we may start to think, well, you know, I've got this Christian life under control. I've got these behaviors under control. And God may give us over to sin to let us really see how dependent and desperately needy of his grace we are. He may try us to temper us, to strengthen us, to increase the strength of our faith. It was Martin Luther, to quote him again, who said that uh, trial and temptation make a minister. Well, they also make a Christian. It's those who have stood against temptation, those who have been tempered through trials, who are growing stronger. Well, you know, perhaps 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted, tested, same word, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, with the test, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, God's purpose is not to destroy you when he tests you. His purpose is to reveal what you are, who you are, to strengthen who you are in Christ. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what, by his grace, you can bear. And he will always give you the opportunity, the resources to stand up in that test so that you come through it with the dross consumed and the gold refined. That's God's purpose in testing us. It is for our good. It is to make us like Christ. It may be to humble us, to temper us, strengthen us, try us. But all for our growth, all for our maturity in his grace. That's all well and good. God does not tempt us to sin. God may test us for our growth, for our good. But the third truth that we learn here, and in a sense I want to spend the rest of the time focusing on this one, is that Satan tempts us. Perazzo, the same word, in order to destroy us. Because what we're praying for here, ultimately, is protection against Satan, against evil. And we'll look at that. You'll notice that the last uh, phrase, deliver us from evil, you may notice there's a note in an alternate translation, or the evil one. And there's some good reasons, exegetically and linguistically, uh, to translate that, the evil one. Some good reasons for evil. Uh, it's kind of hard to know. Maybe shouldn't be too dogmatic either way. Certainly the, the truth is there either way. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. Now, as we talk about Satan, as we talk about evil uh, generally, We need to recognize several things. First of all, Satan is real. Satan is an actual being, a spirit. He's not, as is often depicted, you know, with the little funny tail and the pitchfork and so forth. But he is a fallen, angelic spirit, being, uh, whose purpose is opposed to God 
and therefore is opposed to God's people, God's Christ's kingdom, God's work in the world. And there are several things that we need to note about Satan, particularly as it relates to this verse, and that motivates us to pray this verse. First of all, Satan is vicious. Satan is vicious. Satan does not fight fair. His purpose is death. His purpose is destruction. We get a, a little bit of a hint of this in Scripture. Um, Luke chapter 22. Jesus says to his disciples, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded, note that, demanded to have you. Apparently not as subtle as he was with Job, where he just simply kind of laid the thought out there, well, sure, Job serves you. You've blessed him. Note the language. Satan demanded, presumably of God, demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Sifting out the, the grain from the chaff, presumably, is the idea. But the point here is, is that of something destructive, something painful. Another way we might put it is Satan demanded to have you that he might put you through the meat grinder and grind you up. That he might chew you up and spit you out. That's kind of the idea behind the picture, sifting you like wheat. But note what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He didn't say, I said no. Satan demanded, and I said, no way, Satan. Not going to happen. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat and... By the way, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fall, may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, knowing Peter's life, we could presume this had to do with his testing, his denying Jesus three times, because Jesus even says, when you have turned again, when you've repented, when you've come back from that, strengthen your brothers with the grace that you yourself have received. But even there, again, Jesus says basically Satan's demand is going to be given to him. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail in the middle of this test. That's one instance. Another That's from Luke 22. Another instance is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Now Peter, the very one to whom Jesus was speaking, himself writes in his letter, Be sober-minded. Brothers and sisters, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to chew up and spit out. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, Peter may have had Jesus' words in mind, even as he wrote those words. But Satan's out there. He's like a lion on the loose. You need to be watchful. You need to be sober-minded because Satan is not playing games. He wants your destruction. He wants you to be torn limb from limb, spiritually speaking, and often physically speaking. You may have heard of the three uh, Christians in Turkey who, April 18th, uh, who'd gathered for Bible study. One, two of them were Muslim converts, Turkish natives, uh, one of whom was a pastor. The third man was a uh, German missionary, father of three. And when they had met for their Bible study, uh, 12 men ambushed them, broke into the room. And uh, 
without getting too graphic, let's just say killed them and videotaped it. Several of these men had been involved in their church plant, and the church that they were working with uh, had come, had kind of gotten involved, uh, presumably now, simply to spy out what was going on. Um, it's interesting, shortly after that, I received, or actually shortly before that, I received a phone call from uh, a seminary classmate of mine who was calling from Istanbul, who was going to be here the next week with an event MTW was doing, uh, but calling from Istanbul. And then a week later, I hear about this. It's in World Magazine, by the way, the most recent edition. They have a, an article on these men. Perhaps you've seen it. And I thought, you know, I don't pray for my brother Scott, who is serving as a missionary in Istanbul, Turkey. But perhaps I should. Because Satan is out there like a lion looking to devour. And he works through people. He works through those who commit graphically violent, horribly violent uh, acts, especially particularly against Christians. By the way, the men who did this, all 12 of them were under 21, and they've been arrested, prosecuted. But Satan is vicious. Satan is looking to sift us. Satan is looking to devour us. This is life and death. This is not fun and games. Second, or truth about Satan, Satan is deceptive. He's vicious, but he's also deceptive. Satan can be Satan can attack with a full frontal assault, but he can also be very subtle. Remember Genesis chapter three, and Satan came in and he toys with what God said and he plants ideas in Eve's mind. Did God really say? And begins to question what God said, and begins to imply in that to question God's goodness, God's character, God's generosity, and she began to listen to that. And Eve didn't have a sinful nature to start with. You and I do. You and I are already by fallen nature prone to listen, prone to believe. Eve wasn't at that point. Satan can be very deceptive. And you know what Eve said when God came, asked what was going on. She said to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Jesus said that the devil... He's the father of lies. He's a liar. Sin is a lie. It's always been that case. When you sin, you've been deceived. You were taken. You were had. Sin promises you something and then doesn't deliver. Every time, every time we sin, whether it's big or small, outward sin, inner sin, we believed a lie, we were deceived, and we sinned. That is true every single time. And it's because we believed what the, the sin, what the lie was saying, rather than the truth that God gives us. We choose to listen to the sin, to the deception, to the devil, rather than to the Lord. And by the way, um, the hymn we sang earlier does such a beautiful job of instructing us that certainly it's Satan who tempts us, but we also have to watch out for the world. But we also have to watch out, and you notice that third stanza, praying for ourselves. Watch thyself. It really is true. We don't need Satan's help to sin because we are, in our fallen nature, sinful, and we have a new nature in Christ, and yet that old nature still wants to to do its thing. And Satan can certainly work with that and deceive us. We can rationalize sin. We can explain it away to ourselves. Satan's vicious. Satan is uh, deceptive. Satan is creative. Matthew chapter 4, just prior to this, 
we have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And he comes at Jesus from several different angles. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, after all, the Bible says he will command his angels concerning you. Uh, Verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, all these I'll give to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. No need for the cross. You can have it all. Just worship me and uh, we'll forgo the suffering and the cross and all that. Satan can be very creative in the ways that he comes at us. Uh, Phil Riken at 10th Presbyterian Philadelphia in his book on the Lord's Prayer uh, describes Satan's creativity this way. He says, Satan offers us a complete line of transgressions to choose from. Greed, lust, hatred, despair, and anger. Then there are the refined sins, the sins that only religious people commit, like self-righteousness and spiritual pride. Sometimes our enemy changes tactics, suiting the temptation according to age and circumstance. If Satan cannot get us to sin one way, he will tempt us to sin another. He really doesn't care as long as it works. And I think uh, I think Rockin's on to something. Uh, age, circumstances may affect how we're tempted, how we're liable to fall. So as Paul says of the devil, we are not unaware of his schemes. As Christians, we need to recognize that we do have a lion out there looking for us, prowling about, looking for easy prey, looking for the... Uh, the, the, the sheep to pick off out of the flock. Uh, we're aware of that. Um, also, the same World Magazine, uh, the most recent one, Marvin Alasky, I was just reading this last night, in his article in the last page, said, we talk about the war on terror as a special circumstance, and we're surprised that terror sometimes comes to bucolic campuses, referring to the shooter, the killer at Virginia Tech. In a larger sense, though, human beings have been in a greater war against a terrifying being for millennia, but only some of us know it. Just as Osama bin Laden declared war on the United States well before 9-11, but only a few Americans paid attention, so Satan declared war on the human race as soon as God created man. And only Christians know the nature of that war. My fear, though, is that too often we fall asleep. Remember when Jesus was in the garden with his disciples and he went off a little ways and he said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he came back and they were sleeping. Well, as the hymn we sang warns us, uh, are we on our watch sleeping? Have we fallen asleep? Have we become complacent, lackadaisical, unconcerned about the fact that there is a very real enemy out there, far more vicious than any human terrorist. In fact, they are but his instruments, but his tools, uh, who would seek our downfall. We must be on our guard. Let me give you then, uh, talking about Satan to destroy us, um, let me give you several applications that flow from from all of this. Uh, Really uh, can't elaborate, just almost bullet points. One, do not toy with sin and temptation. 1 Corinthians 10:12 Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Like fire, you don't play with sin, you don't play with temptation, you don't see how close you can get without being burned. Do not toy with sin and temptation. Number 2, know your weaknesses. 
No places to avoid, no thing, books not to read, magazines not to look at, places not to go, maybe even people not to be around. Know your weaknesses. Know those areas where you are most vulnerable. Three, put on the whole armor of God. Go back and look at Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following, where Paul describes the work of Satan and our countermeasures against it. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, uh, feet shod with the gospel of peace, and so forth. Put on that armor. Keep on that armor. Four, fight temptation with Scripture. When Jesus was tempted by Satan and he came at him with these different angles, Jesus responded with God's Word. It is written. Which, of course, means you need to know God's Word. You need to know verses that address areas maybe where you're particularly vulnerable. And when the temptation comes, you can answer it aloud, if need be, with Scripture. Five, expose the lie. Sin always involves deception. Put aside the appeal for a second and say, like you might if you got an email you know, from someone in Nigeria who was looking for a place to park $30 million. You look at that and you say, you know, that's ridiculous. Who falls for that kind of thing? Well, do that with your sin when you're tempted. I know better than that. This is a lie. Somebody's trying to sell me a bill of goods here, and I'm not falling for it. And I know at the end of the day I'll be happier obeying God than I will be sinning, because that's the truth. Sin always comes with a lie. Expose the lie like you would a bad, ill-concealed scam. Now, sin is not always ill-concealed. Satan is clever and subtle. But look for the lie. Look for the place where you're being asked to question God's word. Expose the lie. Sin always involves deception. Don't be deceived. Six, remember Jesus himself was tempted. God is not tempted, but Jesus in his human nature, in his human flesh, was tempted. And you know the verse in Hebrews, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 We go to Jesus. He is sympathetic. Jesus knows what it's like to experience temptation to sin. Never sinned, but he knows that pull. He knows that allure, and all the more strongly than you do, because he never once gave in to it. Right? So remember that you have a sympathetic high priest. Go to the Lord. Pray to him for help. He knows where you've been. He knows what you're going through. And then one more that I actually added on here. Uh, avoid solitariness. Avoid solitariness. That's not my words. Uh, they're from Thomas uh, Watson, the Puritan, in his book on the Lord's Prayer. And I think he's dead on here. Avoid solitariness. It is no wisdom in fighting with an enemy, to give him the advantage of the ground. We give Satan advantage of the ground when we are alone. Two are better than one. Get into the communion of the saints, for that is a good remedy against temptation. And he is absolutely dead on right. It's the lone Christian out there who is easy prey for that roaring lion and so I can say it no better than Thomas Watson. Get into the communion of the saints. Avoid solitariness. You need to be connected with other brothers and sisters in Christ where there's fellowship, where there's mutual encouragement, where there's mutual admonishment. You dare not be out there on your own trying to live the Christian life. Avoid solitariness. And if we take this prayer seriously that Jesus gives here, we will do that because this is a plea. 
and a plead with God. Lead us not into temptation. Don't put us in those situations, Lord, where we'll face the assault of Satan, but deliver us from evil. I'll close with Martin Lloyd-Jones' words, British preacher, last century in London. In his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, he asks, Why should we ask to be kept from evil? For the great and wonderful reason that our fellowship with God may never be broken. If a man merely wants to be holy as such, there's something wrong with him. Our supreme desire should be to have a right relationship with God, to know him, to have uninterrupted fellowship and communion with him. That is why we pray this prayer, that nothing may come between us and the brightness and the radiance and the glory of our Father, which is in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that truly would be the longing of my heart, our hearts, that nothing would come between us. Nothing would dim our joy in you. Nothing would hinder our fellowship with you. No sin that would in any way bring a shadow between us. Lord, we know that we will sin. You know that we will sin. We thank you that when we do, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, the Lord Jesus, the righteous one. But Father, how much better not to sin. How much better when tempted to say, Satan, be gone. Lord Jesus, help me to obey you, to walk with you, to know the joy of fellowship with you. Father, give us a deep sense, a real sense of the threat our enemy poses to us and to our eternal well-being. We thank you, O God, that you are stronger, that the devil is but a created fallen being, that he can do only what you allow him to do. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus died and rose again to destroy the work of the devil. Lord, hold us close. Give us grace and strength when we are tempted. Test us that we might grow stronger in our faith. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.